hello. Hello. And welcome back to the Go Off This podcast. All right, today we are going to get real with a side of tea because we are talking about the almighty reality TV. As in, let's talk about what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. We've always known that Black women, for better or worse, power these shows. From the New York Tiffany Pollards to the Black Chinas to the Melindas of the Too Hot to Handle or nearly every single person on Bravo. And now we're in this era where we're seeing Black women take on leading roles in these reality shows. We see Black bachelorettes, the Real Housewives of Atlanta and Potomac are going viral every single day, the Ready to Loves and beyond. And I think reality TV has evolved into a space where Black women are dominating your screens and, let's be honest, securing the bag. So we're going to get into that conversation and talk about What does reality TV owe Black women, all right, besides a check? And we're going to be bringing on a special guest who is an expert in reality TV later on in this show because she's a star of the craft and a recent alum of The Real Housewives of Atlanta, Miss Portia Williams. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Before we do that, though, I'm going to introduce, of course, my OG unbothered crew who could have their own reality show, Let's Be Real, because that's just how amazing they are. So we're going to kick it off today, and we are going to ask, what reality show and cast would you join if you could? Kathleen and the Six, I'm going to kick it off with you. How you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling good, Charles. Like you said, I'm holding it down for the Six as I do. I'm a senior editor here at Unbothered. Listen, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, and it is a good thing I was not given a good singing voice because I would be on all of those shows. I would be on Idol. I would be on The Voice. I would be trying to become the next pop star. So it's a good thing I can't hold a tune. I'm going to save that for karaoke. And also, all these competition shows, even though I am so competitive, Chelsea, you and I have that in common— They're all also rigged against Black women. So I would try my hand at the Bachelor franchise. And I think that I could do the, you know, get to hometowns, become the Bachelorette, and then secure the bag. We're going to talk about Anae's piece in a second. But as Black women do on these shows, we secure the bag. I'm going to get the Sugar Bear Hair sponsorship. I'm going to sell my soul and start shilling flat tummy tea. I'm going to get that. I'm going to secure the bag. Absolutely. And for the listeners who are checking the timeline, yes, Kathleen did get married last month. That is <laughs> nobody's business. Okay. That, that ain't nobody's business. Chelsea. It has nothing to do with nothing. All right. I'm and it will not archive. stop you. I'm going to hit archive on the IG posts. Nobody will know. Deception. <laughs> Disgrace. <laughs> Look, reality TV people have gone on with far worse skeletons in their closet. So you're good. You're good. Okay. Exactly. Okay, Anae, how we feeling? How you doing? Hey, y'all. It's the doll culture critic Anae here. I just want to say that Kathleen could go on these shows even if she cannot sing because a lot of these people <laughs> cannot sing. <laughs> I'm not sure why she's putting that as a, a boundary or a block. You could do that. As for me, I too would go on the dating show even though I feel like dating shows for Black women are not good. And specifically, I'm going on Too Hot to Handle because it is not hard. To not have sex for however long so you can win $100,000. Let me tell you something. I survived the pandemic. I was there in the trenches at my house in my sweatsuit with nobody hitting my line, nobody holding me, nobody kissing me. And I made it. And I did it for free. Do you guys understand? Like, like there was nobody 
listen, there was no AI telling me, hey, you can't kiss. Nobody was kissing me. I could do it. Don't kiss me. Don't touch me. Don't hold my hand. Don't send me no look. I'm winning the money. That's it. That's all. Period. (laughs) (laughs) I won. I did it for free, y'all. You've been in training. Free. You've been in training for a year and a half. You said, where's my check? She's been send holding me, that in for mad long. Yes, <laughs> I always say that. Send me to the villa right now. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, Maya, how we doing? What's up, y'all? It's your girl from the South, but I'm currently in Cali. You know, your social content creator is always moving. I have two shows. Like, I want to be on College Hill, or I want it to mm. be. Ooh. I feel like it was very mm. unfair that they took that away before I was a college student because I would have had to turn up, okay? So I want to be on College Hill. And then if we're going dating route, I want to say 90 Day Fiance the other way. So then I would go live with him in his country, but only if he's an Arabian or African prince. Okay. Because I'm not leaving (laughs) America where I'm already devastated to be more devastated in a country I can't even speak the language in. So it's just like, you know? Maya's like finessing her way to billionaire as always. Uh, yes. Hello. She can do it. She's the right one to do it. Where's yes. the embassy right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, literally, this is literally your your life plan. Like your immigration plan. I'm just going to find a, a prince and disappear <laughs> and be on a yacht. And there you go. I love it. Look. A plan is a plan, all right? So, okay, I am Chelsea, your VP here at Unbothered. And again, y'all know how dramatic I am, but I I am a reality TV stan, and I love all the housewives and everything that Bravo has to offer, but I couldn't do it because I genuinely hate conflict. That is the Libra in me. I'm just like, no, no, like just at the end of the day, I want everyone to be America's Next Top Best Friend, like really and truly. <laughs> I, I do, I just do. Friend. Shout out to Jade, the biracial butterfly. But... I think, and I've talked about this, and I've thought about this, and I have an entire plan, okay? So here's what I'm going to do. Okay, bet. I am going to go on The Amazing Race, okay? Which is a show that has been on for maybe 20 years on CBS, still going strong, with my sister, who is older than me, meaner than me, more competitive than me, and literally will, like, lift a truck if asked it need be. We're going to go on that show. We're going to be the strategy people, but we're also going to be like, oh, hey, sister is great. And then what you're going to not see is us smoking the, like, hero firefighters up the pyramid as we're figuring out Montezuma's puzzle. Boom, $1 million. I win. Then (laughs) I take over as the host of the show. Done. Plot twist. (laughs) Done and done. Don't even know what the host's name is. Who cares? Step aside. It's He's listening to the podcast like, wait a minute. You're welcome. Tune in Sunday at 8 p.m. 7 Central. (laughs) This is a lot. What's the timeline for this? We're talking next year, the year after that. What's the, the vibe? I'd say anywhere between 18 to 52 months. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, she sounds like like one of those moms. Like, how old is your child? He's 24 months. That's, <laughs> that's a two-year-old, ma'am. Stop that. <laughs> okay. A scammer, a couple finessers, and then a person who's going to sweat on TV. Because I'm, I'm not sweating, but Chelsea says she's going to do it for the rest of us. Okay. Yes. I, I see the vibe. I see the vibe. <laughs> yes. I told you, it's that Whitney Houston upper lip sweat. Like, it's real. Okay? Like, that's what we're getting into. But I think, like, today you bring up a really good point about reality TV and the things that we're drawn to, right? It's, let's sort of, like, take that back. Because when we're talking about going on reality TV or being on reality TV, why are we doing that? Like, why are we putting ourselves through that? And our answer is very clear. (laughs) 
But I, I'd like to hear from you today mm-hmm. about what you think that reason is of why us for or even any black woman would go on reality TV when, as Kathleen said, the cards are stacked against us. It's for money. That's really it. That's really, I don't think that there's anyone on this podcast who has not said anything that doesn't have to do with money. Sugar bear hair care, flat tummy tea, (laughs) hosting the thing, rich man. It's about money. And I feel like that's fair and that's totally fine. Me personally, I'm not going to subject myself to sweating on a a pyramid. Well, I wasn't going to do that anyway, but I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't go compete with other women for a man. I wouldn't go and be, you know, trying to date someone who lives in Peru or whatever, unless... I was getting a million dollars out of it. I feel like it's already hard to be a black woman because of this like misogynistic world anyway. So if you're going to do that and struggle on TV in front of the white gays, in front of the, <laughs> the male gays and the capitalist gays, you better be getting some money out of it. Like really, if I'm going on these dating shows, I'm not trying to find my man. I'm trying to find the bag. And I want mm. you to get that million dollars. I want you to become the host of the show. I want you to find that millionaire. So I'm going to keep watching and I'm going to keep supporting you. Even though I'm like, mm, I wouldn't do it, but would I do it? Mm. Money money can do a lot of things for people. So I'm with it. I hear it. See, I don't really know why we do it. But I'm here for it. You know, I don't need you to give me a reason why you're doing it. I just need you to come out on top at the end of the day. Yeah. That's number one. And number two... I think people are kind of upset because this is like the new reign of Black women socialites. Like, when have we seen that? We've never seen Black women socialize. And they're using these opportunities to get their recognition so they can get these deals and these followers. And they run in the bag up because Paris Hilton is a very big socialite. What? No shade. What has she done? They was fiending when this when she, she just got married. Oh my gosh, Paris got married. I really want to know what she did. So I can get the blueprint. I can do it. And I can have me a little biggie bag too. Okay. Here's what I will say. And I'm speaking up for the folks in the back who remember 2002 reality TV. Bring it back. Bring it back. Simple (laughs) life, Nicole. Okay. I'm I'm just saying that little blonde girl was doing something. I'm just saying. Okay. She had a formula. She created what the Kardashians legitimately stole like and ran with it. And now... They're bajillionaires doing who knows what. And Paris is like, okay, so I still have this voice. So what am I going to do with it? (laughs) Like, she got left behind. But she had a formula, okay? But I I hear what you're saying, Maya, about the fact that what we need to be doing is getting recognition for that before anyone else. Like I said, like, even in the intro of the people that we were mentioning, these were all people who were doing it, doing it amazing and, like, perfected the craft. Mm-hmm. of reality TV and showed us how like much talent it takes to be on reality TV. But mm-hmm. for what? <laughs> to, for who and for why, which is what I say all the time. And I think that Chelsea, like you're bringing up so many good points about how like Black women have made this genre, but also, and this is a point that Anae has made in the past, is that Black women come with us like built-in fan base, right? Like yeah. we're all cheering for the Black woman we see on these reality shows immediately. Like, we're going to support you. And I think that the disconnect is that the people making some of these reality TV shows, because I have spent years, again, as Anae would say, being in white people's business, watching these reality shows that do Black women dirty time Mm -hmm. and time again. And you can tell that they don't want us there. They don't want to foster that Black talent or put Black women in the center of these shows. It's kind of like they do it as like, a, oh, you know, let's sprinkle in some diversity in there. Mm. And that's why they're doing it. And they're not seeing 
the value. And it's also, especially in like the early days of reality TV, you saw who they were picking. And it really seemed like the Black women were like the pick-me type of Black woman. And they wanted that white validation, especially when it comes to dating shows. I think that Black women have had to finesse these franchises and realize that even though it's not built for us, we're going to get the best out of it anyway, as we do always. And reality TV owes a lot to Black women. And we have not, as Chell said, been given that credit. Mm. All of the words. Because I think what you're saying, which is so true, is that no matter what, once we're on a show, we're going to be the stars, like, regardless. Like, when you talk about early reality TV, you even go back to Omarosa, who was the original sort of, like, villain, right, of reality TV. People hated her. It was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) It was. Oh, my God, why people were so mad about her. And her hair stayed laid the whole time. And she was just like, if you want a villain— I'll give you a villain. Exactly. I think when we're talking about these franchises not being built for us, but finding a way in either by design, by brilliance, by luck, just by pure grit, like it's Black women who are doing that, right? It's the Ninis, it's the Tiffany Pollards, it's the Cardi B's, right? Mm -hmm. But those are sort of the breakout stars. But where are the rest? Like where are the other ones who we know and have seen on shows And just disappeared, right? Like, where are they profiting from this besides maybe, again, an IG Sugar Bear post? Where's that going? Because I think we know that reality TV is not safe for us, but we are the ones who literally make the shows, draw in the ratings, and get the revenue for all these networks. That's so true. But for me, it's like, you really either have to be the hero on these shows or the villain. Because, and I know either way people are going to drag you, but What I commonly see is when they get dragged, how they handle it. They sometimes cannot handle it, and it's a spiral effect. So while I do support them getting the bag, I'm very big on, girl, get your bag, but get your bag safely, which means Mm. physically, emotionally, and psychologically still be safe because these shows will have you thinking that you are the bottom of the bottom and the crumb of the crumb. And you might have made one little mistake, a little steaky steak, and based off how they edited the footage, you can't redeem yourself. We have to get ourselves together. And when we go into these spaces, say, yes, I'm doing it for this money, but I've trained myself to block out the noise so that my mental health stays stable and I'm not really affected by the masses who also don't really know anything about me because this reality TV stuff is not reality for real. So Yeah. I mean, there's an, a level of intention that you have to have going into it, right? It's like you... Back in the day, I think that a lot of Black women or just people in general will go on to reality TV and be like, oh, I'm going to get exposure. I'm going to get famous. But you don't know what to do with that fame. You don't know what to do with that exposure. And I think that the strategy that a lot of new the new girls and the new people are having is like, I'm going in with a plan. When you're a Black woman on reality television, you're going to be vilified either way. Every hero, if you live long enough, you're going to become the villain. And so I think about like Cynthia from Real Housewives of Atlanta. She didn't do nothing. She was chilling. She was just <laughs> beautiful, stunning, everything. But Cheekbones. Hated mm-hmm. cheekbones, hair, body. She was giving, but people hated her because she was boring. And I'm putting quotes around that so people yeah. know that uh, she's minding her business. That's not boring. But then you think about like Giselle from Potomac, who is, I'm going to say it, very messy, very negative, very bad vibes. And people are like, mm. I really like her. And other people are like, oh my God, boo. Oh. Like at the end of the day, the, whether it's production editing you a certain way or you just choosing to be like, I'm going to do what I want, you're going to be the villain at some point. 
there's a box that production wants to put you in, the, a box that casting directors want to put you in, and you have to decide, I'm cool with that box, or being like, mm, you know, the rules are fake. I'm going to do what I want to do. I think about like Tiffany Pollard on Flavor Flav. I'm sure that they did not know she was going to be a Hellion. I'm sure that they did <laughs> not expect her to be a terrorist on that show. Right. And then she was a terrorist on the show. And so they gave her her own show. And she was like, I'm going to continue raising hell on this show as well. Every other show that Tiffany Pollard has been on, she has been what? A hellion. She could have changed it. But she was like, no, I'm going to stick to that. So I think it's about choosing your lane, whether you want to be the good guy or the bad guy. Like you are the one who creates that box because all of this is fake. Like you, you have to drive mm-hmm. the boat for yourself. I mean, you you brought up a lot of great stuff because it's true. Like, no matter what, again, if you are not the executive producer, you know, a la Andy Cohen, you're not going to have final say in this. So you might yeah. as well give what you can give and get out, right? But I think, and I know, again, this is television. This is revenue. This is bottom lines. This is audience ratings. But I'm still going back to this mental cost that Maya's talking about, right? Like, I know, you know, you have the argument And A, like you said, that do what you need to do, get out. But there is this thing of like when you're on TV, it doesn't just affect you, right? It's not just the person who's sitting in the chair giving that interview, being a hellion and being wild funny, but also a mess, right? That's being broadcast to millions of people in their homes. A lot of people who don't encounter a lot of Black people in their regular day-to-day lives, right? Or have a certain perception of Black women as aggressive or as sassy, right, or as angry. And now that's what they see, so their views are validated. That sort of representation, whether real or fake or, you know, a production storyline, still gets put out there. So there is some Mm -hmm. sort of, like, responsibility, maybe, by these people who are going on these shows, whether they know it or not, and whether that's deserved or not. But they are, in some ways, representing Black women. I get that. I think it's kind of like a double-edged sword, though, because I don't don't really think that's fair. I don't think it's fair to put a whole genre of anybody on your back, regardless of who you are, and say, you represent this group of people. I love Black women to the death of me, and I will always root for their success, but all Black women don't represent me. And that doesn't mean that women who I feel don't represent me are bad, are evil, or anything like that. They just, I don't align with them, and that's okay. I don't feel like it's fair that one person can go on television who looks like me, and the rest of the world will be like, oh, that's how all Black people because I feel like that's really small-minded. And at what point do we put accountability on the audience and say, I'm going to need you to be a little bit smarter than that and um, open up your horizons and experience more things? Because just because Black people in America act like that or in LA act like that or wherever you are, doesn't mean people in Atlanta act like that. Doesn't mean people in Florida act like that. Doesn't mean people in Alaska act. Black people in Alaska, if there are any, shout out to y'all. It's like 10, like, 10, 10 of, 10 of you them. Know, you know, you know. We everywhere, we everywhere. <laughs> right, we out here. And it's just like, it's, it's really not fair because when you see anything happen with a white person, you don't say, well, all white people act like this and da 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 this, that, and the third. So why would you do that to black people? Because it's convenient for you to put us in this situation and our box to secure your ways of already thinking about us. You, you have to open your mind and say, wow, that's how Candace is. That's how Monique is. That's how Nene is. That's how Tiffany is. And that's just that on that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, my all of that is true and facts and like in a perfect world. Yeah. 
I remember when Omarosa was first cast on The Apprentice, and, like, me and my family were so excited. We're like, Black woman's gonna be on The Apprentice. And, like, I wanted to root for her. Like, we were all rooting for you in my Tyra voice. Mm. And then Omarosa (laughs) is actually a great example for all the reasons of somebody who does not represent us. I'm I'm just gonna speak for myself here. She does not represent me. And so that is, like, the limits, I think, of representation and of putting, like, these exceptions in these reality spaces who do end up representing a lot of Black people. So I think with that in mind, maybe it's about divesting from those kind of shows. Yeah. And moving into a show like Ready to Love or a show with Black producers and Black people at the helm because it is really about how you're positioned and and the editing and how they want to view you. I want to actually just jump off of what you're just saying, Kathleen, also about sort of like representation and the limits of it and what we put ourselves in and what people put on us. Because the other thing about this is, as you're talking, I'm also just thinking about the world that reality TV has spawned for, like, social media, right? When you think about, like, the memes, right? You think every single, like, New York meme, Anini, bloop, bloop, fix it, Jesus kind of, like, all of those that have become regular popular culture. And now, even beyond that, not even now memes, we get into what we're, I guess, now calling blackfishing, right? Where we have these people who are taking these things that Black women have said, you know, and merchandising it, monetizing it. They're putting it on t-shirts. They're tweeting them and that's not what you look like. That has nothing to do with you. And that has that's not the way you speak. That's not the way you talk. And you're, you know, mimicking these people and putting on this sort of, like, reality TV costume, right? Mm-hmm. And then it sort of, like, goes to another level of representation of, like, yes, you are this one person doing this one thing, and you shouldn't be representing an entire culture. But people also, you know, once you're on TV, it's fair game. So they take it, they distort it, they appropriate it, and then spit it back at you. So there is also this level where it becomes toxic, too, right? Where the people who we're not even sure who this is for, are taking this and trying to, like, have ownership over these voices and these characters who are usually Black women. And I think, Chelsea, goes back to the systemic exploitation of this medium. You know, in general, reality TV is set up to exploit the contestants. And it is a medium that is also really based on looks, no matter what. So you're going to get colorism, featurism, fat phobia, no matter also who is behind the camera. I think all the time to go back to the memes and what Black women create and then how it then goes out into the world. I think about Nini and how many times a day I say, now why am I in it? Like, (laughs) that's just how often do we say that and do we take something that Nini said and use it and it's all over the internet and, and how much money is Nini seeing from that? And, you know, Black women have set the the blueprint on these shows, but they've also given themselves now to the culture and the culture takes part of their their personalities and they brand it and it's no longer theirs. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a level of like humanity that is stripped away from you when you are on these shows and then your like likeness and your words and your phrases become a meme. You are a cultural artifact. And for Black women, obviously, there's a a huge pay disparity between, like, what Anini Leaks would make versus, like, a Bethany Bethany or, like, 
Bethany. Bethany. What's her name? Bethany Franklin. (laughs) Girl, I'll be watching the show, but Girl Housewives of New York is not my my ting. Bethany Franklin. Not Benjamin Franklin's cousin. (laughs) (laughs) But you see what I'm saying? She's not she's not giving she's not giving like Nene. She's not a staple in the culture. Right. But if you think about you compare their networks, Bethany is making so much more than Nene. And that is just a credit to like speaks to a culture of black women being underpaid and not giving their full credit. If we're talking about how painful and stressful this experience is, when you leave, what do you leave with? Nene should be a millionaire if she's not already. Tiffany Pollard should be a multimillionaire if she's not already. And we're thinking about it and we're seeing that it's just like Nene is a meme. Nene deserves all the flowers. The flowers are money. That's the flowers. The flowers Mm -hmm. are money. These people should be getting more money. And when you compare it to like their white counterparts, the disparity is so obvious that it's like it's not enough to be an icon if you're not getting paid to be an icon. It's a big reason why Nene Leakes cut ties with Bravo because she was like, I'm not getting respected enough financially in comparison to the other people across these different shows. That made me think about something. These white (coughs) Real Housewives don't have to go off of their show to make more money. I feel like we do. We have to go on the show, gain clout or recognition, and then pivot to get extra things. These other women don't have to do all of that. They're just on that show. That check is good enough, and they're sitting very much pretty. But the other housewives that are Black have to do that plus some more. and. I feel like, one, you're disrespectful. Two, I'm giving you more than they will ever give you, and you're paying me crumbs while I still have to do more work just to have enough. And I don't like that. That's number one. Number two, with the transition period, I've only seen one person who's been on a Black show, air quotes again, and transitioned off and became very popular and very rich, which is Cardi B. But other women shouldn't have to be on these reality shows and then pivot from there and do something else because the checks are not coming in how they should be. That's disrespectful. We don't like that. And we carry in Bravo on our back. That's right. I said it. I mean, I think that also speaks to a generational phenomenon, right? Like we're looking at, we're living in a time where people can literally get paid thousands of dollars off of a single Instagram post, right? People Mm -hmm. and brands are flocking to these people and throwing money at them just to have a hashtag ad in their caption on Instagram. I think about Cardi in that a whole never gets cold moment. Shout out to Vine. Mm. We miss you so much. TikTok <laughs> never. But thinking about that moment, it was kind of at the start of this this like period where you could get rich off of Instagram, off of Vine, off of Twitter, off of all of these things. And your like internet moment can translate into real dollars. I think about like Tiffany Pollard and Nene Leakes and Omarosa. They're not that far like in the past or whatever. But if we think about the role that the internet played in their fame, it's a totally different generation, a totally different time. But if it was today, Tiffany Pollard would have been sitting on piles of money just based off of that first season of Flavor Flav. It, she would have been instantly famous. The, the money would have entered her account immediately. But what happened was more like, oh yeah, that is an iconic person. And then 20, not even 20, I don't want to you know, put no age on nobody. But <laughs> That's a great point because I also <laughs> want to talk about this time that we're in, right? Which is also very, very different than the OGs that we've been talking about with like the Tiffany Pollards and the Amorosas. Now we're talking again about the Rachel Lindsay's, that other yeah. Black Bachelorette. Shout out to you. It's uh, like two. Melinda. It's two yeah. Michelle two Young, Tasha Adams. 
great, love them. (laughs) What I'm saying is like, we're in a completely different time now. Five years ago, you know, even like a year ago, because now in addition to playing the villain, the hero, the stylish one, the funny one, the mad one, and not getting paid for it. Now we're in the situation where we also have to be the educator. Right? Like, Uh we're now, we're being brought on to represent Black women in this community and to share our knowledge, our gems to an entire audience of people who are not familiar and, frankly, not really interested when they turn on the shows, right? So, we're sort of, like, fighting these uphill battles to then now be presented in a certain way of, it puts this really specific burden on Black women. You know, we, we did a piece earlier in the year about Ebony Williams, right, who who joined Real Housewives of New York and was the first Black woman on that show. And throughout the whole season, you saw her sort of, like, struggling to be, like, to make racism fun, you know? Like, to make mm, it somehow, right. like, take a shot, but also let me talk to you about Black Lives Matter, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ebony talked about it when she was on this podcast. She talked about the the pressure of being that, like, re- respectability politics type of Black person and, you know, having to explain everything to white people. And, like, nobody wants to be that person. You know, you look at Rachel Lindsay on The Bachelor and why she has now divested from The Bachelor franchise because she was the person that had to, like, explain to Chris Harrison why something was racist. She was, like, the go-to person there. And I also think there's a reason why an Ebony and a Rachel gets picked, or even Michelle Young, who's The Bachelorette right now. It's because they are an Obama type of Black person. They are this, like, very, from a white lens, that this very, like, prototypical, shining example of a Black person. And I think that's also kind of the shift that we've seen with reality TV, where before it was like they wanted you to be a mess. And now it's like to pat themselves on, the ba- on their back to get, you know, this, like, woke white card. But I think that, you know, from the executive producers, they're they're trying to frame this new narrative of the only Black people that now get chosen for these things uh, have to be a very specific type of person. I mean, even even on Black shows, though, I think realistically speaking, there is a tendency to try to go towards that respectability project, like that politic of trying to be respectable. We want to show the real Black people and Black people moving towards excellence or whatever. I think about that HBO Max show, Sweet Life. It was a great show, but the young people, people who are 22 years old, talked about Black excellence every day. Mm. (laughs) Y'all are not going to the club. (laughs) Nobody is having a a depressive episode. Like, they talked about building generational wealth and representation. I was like, at 21, don't even ask me about that. (laughs) <laughs> Where are the band at? Where are the people at? I want to go to a party. I want to go on vacation. It was kind of like they had to prove all of that to make it seem like, oh, we're different from a Mona Scott Young show. And I'm like, realistically speaking, right, I get the need to try to prove worth and excellence and value. But there are a lot of messy Black people. I'm kind of mm. messy. I'm kind of chaotic. And I feel like it is better to see that kind of mess. There are ghetto people out here. There are broke people out here. There are people with 10 baby mamas out here. There are people with with felonies. There are people with, you know, who are disabled. There are people like, and, and any kind of ism or whatever, there are people who fall into that category. So it's just like the reality space in general is just a hellscape. So if you're going to watch it, watch it with some Black people. But you know. Well, there we go. Because again, we want to make sure that the money is going back to us. And and A, those are fantastic 
points because I think, as Kathleen mentioned, even when we maybe are behind the camera, like we're not necessarily protecting the people on the show. But do we think we'll have a better chance with that? You know, with the Ready to Loves and the Will Packer productions and the reality TV shows we maybe do want to tune into that are about us, for us, and by us? I mean, it's, it's Black people's business. Like, it's messy, but it's ours. <laughs> it's ours. It's ours to judge. It's ours to be mad about. Because it's like, you see, you know, in real life, you see Black men doing somehow or acting weird. You see Black girls fighting each other or beefing with each other. It's our business. But when you put white people in it and that there's only one Black person, it's like, now why am I watching this? Who can yeah. I, it's only one Black person to root for, at least on a show like Ready to Love. You can root. There's... 20 people. You can, you're going to root for at least 12 of them. And I feel like that's, those are better odds. I'll take those odds, even if there's a little bit of fat phobia or colorism or whatever, because that's real life too. It feels like it's more reflective of your life. Exactly, like, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a mess, but it's our mess. <laughs> <laughs> But are we messy or are we investigators to uncover the truth? I mean, it's all how you frame it. I mean, messy, outed you for being a liar. Sometimes you just want to, you just want to unplug your brain and see some Mm. mess. And that's the thing that it sucks because as Black people, we have to be so like nuanced when we watch this stuff. I would just love to see chaos and then turn it off and go to sleep, right? But look at us unpacking it and thinking about the trauma of all this stuff. And I'm just like, that's another burden of being Black in this world. You go on a show and you have to have an ulterior motive because you know that you're not going to fulfill the ultimate goal of the the reality series. And as viewers, we're watching it and be like, yes, I'm rooting for Rachel, but I know that that she must be pissed that there are not enough <laughs> eligible Black men on the show. I'm rooting for Melinda, but my God, why aren't people in love with her because she's stunning? I th- wish that we could be more like mindless about it. We should just be mm-hmm. here for vibes, but we're sitting here and unpacking it because of how much the world hates Blackness, specifically Black women, specifically dark-skinned Black women, specifically dark-skinned mm. Black women who are fat. Specifically, like We could keep going. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm tired. I just want to have fun. I'm here for vibes. <laughs> right? We just, like, are you not entertained? We just want to be entertained. Yeah. They're my friends, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> They're my friends. <laughs> like, they are. I'm like, oh, let me, let me just check in to see uh, what Porsche's doing next, which we're going to figure out right after this break, all right? So we're going to get into it. Thank you all. We This was a great discussion just to talk a little bit about what reality TV owes us, but also what we're giving. And we're giving energy, but we're getting the bag. Point blank, period. And with that, we have reached the end of our very real, very reality TV discussion. Oh, but wait, because that means it's time for the Don't At Me, all right? And in case y'all forgot, the Don't At Me is the part of our discussion where we tie a bow on our conversation, we give y'all some food for thought, and mostly just some energy to move about your day with. And in case the title wasn't clear, you can't add us, okay? Nothing. Nunca. Non. Nine. No. Heart emoji. And in true reality show fashion, I'm going to pass it to the realest doll over here, Anae. So break us off one of those don't at me's, a police. As we bring our conversation about reality television to a close, I think it's super important for all of us to remember that even though this specific genre was made for entertainment purposes, the reality is that regardless of the premise, it's so much deeper than just making us laugh. For better or for worse, these reality shows are a reflection of our society and vice versa. The culture is just as influenced by what we see on these programs day in and day out. That means all of the 
isms and the phobias that we deal with in real life are just as present in the shows that we're watching to de-stress from real life. And that, that kind of sucks. So how do we combat that reality as people like Chelsea, who may or may not pursue that specific path in the next few years, or as viewers who are shouting at the TV from our couches? If you're interested in becoming a reality star, be prepared. If you're watching these shows from home, be aware. Know that the rules of reality TV are just as fake as they are real, and that in this racist and sexist and ridiculous world, Black women are typically going to get the shorter end of the stick. To all the Black women on reality TV who paved the way for the new crop of dolls, the culture owes you a lot, and by a lot, I mean millions of dollars. To the next generation of Black women who are knowingly putting themselves on the front lines of reality television, we're rooting for you. Unless, you know, you give us a reason not to. Anyway, I'm going to leave you all with a deep quote from the great philosopher Queendom. Get that bread, get that head, then leave. In this situation, you know, the, the head is the Fashion Nova affiliate code or the Sugar Bear hair care partnership or the millions of followers on Instagram. Then leave. Don't at me. Welcome to season five of the Go Off Sis podcast, brought to you by Target, our destination for celebrating ourselves and our success this year. This season, we're reminding you what it means to be that girl. From breaking generational curses to building ownership and just straight up luxuriating, we are using our voices to lead the culture forward because you know we own it. So whether you're looking to build out your new space or just take up space, Target has what we need to embrace our personal style and make sure you're ready to own whatever room you walk into. To learn more, head over to Target.com. Okay, so from the flawless baby hairs to the fashion looks and one-liners to the civil rights advocacy that runs in her bloodline, all right? She is one of today's most recognizable faces and notable voices within pop culture, television, podcast, Black people tings. Our special guest needs no introduction, but because we're on Go Offices, you know we're going to give her flowers. She is a boss entrepreneur and founder of Pampered by Portia and Go Naked Hair. She is the host of the Portia For Real podcast, co-host personality. The world has watched her journey on television for over nine years on The Real Housewives of Atlanta, and now she'll be bringing her talents to Portia's Family Matters coming soon. And on top of that, she a whole author, okay? Bringing all of the things in her new book, The Pursuit of Portia. Welcome, welcome to the podcast, Portia Williams. Thank you so much for being here. Wow, hey. thank you. I'm gonna snap myself for that. That is some type of intro. Yes, brush your shoulders off, all right? We do it right here. Yes. Okay, thank you. All right, so we're going to jump right in because we have been primed and talking about reality TV and Black women on reality TV today, and we just had a great conversation about that. And I think as someone, as we said, who's been in the game for almost a decade of your life, you shared so much, the the ups, the highest of highs, and the lowest of lows. And I think, you know, as someone who has been watching you since you came onto the scene, I thought I knew everything there was to know about Portia. And I was wrong. I was very, very wrong. So tell us a little bit about this book, Pursuit of Portia, because there's so much here that 
we've never seen from you. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit about why you wanted to share this now and why you wanted to write this book now. So uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you, ladies, for having me. Y'all are absolutely gorgeous. Yes, I love a podcast where you can see the queens. I love it. (laughs) So yes, thank you for having me. Um, So my new book, The Pursuit of Portia, is of course played off of The Pursuit of Happiness. And it's all about the pursuit of my truest self, which is where I feel I am at this point in my life. And because that's the place where I am, and I know it took a lot for me to get here, a lot of life I lived to get here, I feel that all that I opened up about in this book can possibly help inspire someone else to get to their truest self, their pursuit of whomever they want to be, their better self. In the book, I definitely decide to use my life as a testimony, which I don't, you know, you say you you feel like you know me from reality TV and you don't know this side. Well, in life off of camera, I do this in one-on-one conversations a lot. It's just Mm. kind of my nature and possibly a part of my calling to always want to use my life as a testimony. And I've done it somewhat on the show in self-deprecation and, you know, just kind of like playing off of myself, not taking myself too seriously, but really hitting on something that could be embarrassing, could have been a low moment in order to, you know, make it a part of the conversation so someone can get something. So in the book, I really start from childhood along my entire journey up until now, up until this point that we're talking almost right now. I talk about my faith and how I've gone through so many different situations in life that I know people can relate to. But through writing this book, I really just wanted to open up and talk about some of the lows and some of the highs to really further give a bigger picture on who Portia is, the Portia that you see today, who young girls see today and let them know that a lot of my life that I've lived is so relatable that you see yourself fit in and say, oh my gosh, I've been through that. Or, you know, I I know someone who's been through something like that. And hopefully through me, through the accounts of how I found my way out of those dark places and some of those inspiring moments from my family being my backbone, my foundation, faith being my foundation, Hopefully that can help someone else find their voice and get to their truest self. And so when you talk about sort of that path, right, and and we're going to, you know, go back a little bit and and start from the beginning and and talk a little bit about that. But I want to ask before we delve into that, because you said this is your testimony and this is where you are now. Who is Portia now? Portia now, I am now a person who is very self-aware in a way that I'm protective of who I am. I protect my peace. I say what I mean and I mean what I say because I know who I am, who I belong to. I know what my power is. I know how to use it, how not to use it. I am just at a place of complete truth. And it has led me to be able to have such an amazing, authentic circle around me. Because anything that does not align with the energy that I have and my vibration now, they're just not around me. So whoever is here, I cherish them. I love them. I feel really fulfilled with the life that I have now. And I appreciate the life that I have now. I appreciate my faults. I appreciate the good parts of who I am. And I have not always been this person. And the book goes back to the very beginning of some of those habits that I formed very early on, 
that led me into very traumatic situations to where I had to fight for my life and find myself and get to where I am today. So I am very much at peace with my process. I'm very much at peace with my journey. Um, and I still got a long way to go. I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm look, a work in progress, but I am purposeful and I am intentional with everything that I do now, which is very different from how I used to operate. Mm. I want to talk about that progress and how you got to this peaceful moment that you're in now. Because, you know, when we were introduced to you on The Real Housewives, you were positioned in a very intentional way that maybe was out of your hands. You can speak to this. But it was, you know, this this very specific wife, like a trophy wife even, let's say. And you've said that you were trying to be a particular kind of wife, you know, either for your ex or for yourself or for whoever. And so I want to talk about after your divorce, we saw you in this very different light. And what was that growth like for you and stepping into your own space and stepping into that power and this place of of healing that, that you just talked about? Coming out of my divorce, if any of you have ever been divorced before, it does not matter whether you hate the man or not, okay? It is the ending of a part of your life. It's the ending of something you hope for. It's the ending of a future you visualize. So that was a death of, of some sort to me. Because when I got married, I killed off Portia mm-hmm. as the individual to become mm-hmm. a married woman. And that was my new identity. That was who I was. So then I had another death of the wife Portia, the mother Portia. That had to die. So I literally hit a brick wall and had to start from scratch and find the Portia I let go back then. But what I rediscovered at the age of 30 through having a divorce is that the Porsche back then, I don't necessarily want to pick her ass back up and bring her into my 30s because she needs some work. I really had to just take time and dive deep and figure out what is this new Porsche going to be? What is it that's going to sustain her throughout the rest of her life so she doesn't find herself in these dark depression moments? You know what? Now that I've done this book, The Pursuit of Portia, which is something that a lot of people don't do, which is sit down and look at your journey in a timeline. And then you start to see the patterns in your life that you have repeated over and over and over again. Decisions that you made over and over different times where you put yourself in the back seat over and over and over. I said, when I turned 30 after my at 30, 31 after my divorce, I honestly never had any more abusive relationships. I never let a man talk to me, raise his voice, nothing. Any red flag, I was like, uh-uh. Like when it came to, you know, harming me, I never was in it. And which is crazy. What I told was is crazy because my entire 20s was abusive with men. The entire time. I remember I was in my room upstairs in our house. We were going through the divorce. And I was hitting that wall again. And I was thinking back about darker moments. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to that place. I saw myself going headed there. I was like, I don't want to go there. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. I said, God, give me something to sustain me through this. Give me a way out of this. And I realized at that moment that happiness was something I had always searched for, always 
wanted from someone else. And I and then I realized, well, that's not something anybody else can give me. I'm always going to be let down. I'm always going to be disappointed. And at that moment, God blessed me with joy. And joy was something that I knew was for me and nobody could ever take that away. So whether I had happiness or not, whether I went to bed sad and crying and depressed, I always woke up. Even if I wasn't happy, I still had joy because that meant I had more life to live. I still had hope. And so once I got that message from God, I never let anybody take that from me again at all. Like I mm-hmm. literally never, never. I didn't care about being disappointed by men. Hell, I knew men one shit most of the time. Say but that. then I just <laughs> let them treat me that way. But in my 30s, I really was like, I know you ain't nothing. I know you're going to make me happy. But I have joy and peace in myself. I don't necessarily need it from you. And what I realized through that is that I didn't have to see myself through other people's eyes. And, you know, and, and that was pretty profound. And that completely changed the trajectory of my life as it as it, you know, related to business relationships, friendships, and with men. Come on, Pastor Portia. Come on. Hey! Talk to him. Talk to him. I didn't have to see myself through other people's people's eyes. eyes. I I clocked that just now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you get that very early on. You can see, and that's why I love the way we did the book. It starts at childhood, and you can see you know, from a child who the depression is there, but it's from the bullying and bullying started with people speaking on me, telling me that I was skinny, telling me that I was ugly or dumb. And I started to believe that early on. And as as adults, we look at that as something very small for kids. Like, oh, you've been bullied. You be stronger. Go find some friends. No, that began a habit of me only seeing myself through people's eyes. So when it came to men, I only saw myself in their plan, never had my own plan, never valued my own damn plan, which led me to a lot of those very, very harmful accounts that I talk about in The Pursuit of Portia. I'm wondering, just as you're sort of reliving this, you're very clearly in like a lifted space. But I'm wondering, as you were sort of writing this book and then had to go back to those times, right, and had to sort of recount them and in some ways relive them, were there things from there that you still had to sort of work through or you had already sort of moved past that and, you know, didn't really have to get into that? Because as you said, there was a lot in there that was hard for any person to deal with, let alone, again, someone who's working that out in the public on camera too. So for me, I knew, you know, just like a lot of people when it comes to like their purpose in life, they all, I want to know what purpose in life is. You probably already know it. You're running from it, right? And so I knew that this book was in me. I just was like, damn it, I got to raise a child. I got to work. I ain't got time to sit and cry. I don't got time for all of this, you know? And it really was a me thing. Me, me, me. I, what I didn't want, how I didn't want me to break down. But once I truly thought about all those experiences, what I needed, what that young Porsche needed was the Porsche today. And so I was like, well, shit, I got to do this for my daughter. And I talked to a, a male friend of mine and he was like, you got to do this for my daughters. And I was like, you're right. And then I was like, mommy, is it OK? You know, mommy's OK to tell all of this. And she was like, you got it, girl. You, you, I, know, I trust that you will handle this responsibly. So I was like, OK, fine. So 
But the real reason I was running away from it is because I know how I am now. Portia, then I probably would have talked about fabulous cars, fabulous men. I lived in a penthouse. I own my own business. You know, but the portion now I knew that once I began this process, I was going to deal with the nitty gritty of it all. Because if I'm going to tell this part of my business like this, I have to be effective. I need you to understand. I don't need to be misunderstood like on the reality show. You get a piece of the puzzle and you think, oh, she's ditzy or she's whatever. or She's this or hopeless romantic. I didn't need that. I needed that if I was going to tell you that I was raped, I needed you to understand the mentality of a girl in that position and why she wouldn't call the authorities or why it happened to her multiple times or how I ended up marrying who I married and how I got to where I am I needed you to understand the full picture. So I knew that when I wrote this book, I was going to be very, very, very detailed. And that's why in the book, I do name some names, but that's my story. That's, this is my story. This is, this is how I processed these situations in my life. And I'm only telling my side, it's not to be hurtful to anybody else. It's only to give a true experience and speak to uh, something that I know a lot of girls go through. A lot of them go through. And hopefully they can find strength before I found my strength. And they don't have to go through it. You are speaking, like, really Girl, and truly. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. This is that thing called life. So... Throughout all of your changes, do you think that you being on reality TV has affected or impacted those changes? Have the cameras, you know, had a role in helping you find your voice? Okay, I like how you phrased that. Camera helping me. Thank you. Hello, somebody who gets what's happening. So on reality TV, you know, it's a lot of it is done for entertainment. But what ends up being entertainment is truth, right? Reality, what's actually happening in somebody's life. Like, that's who you relate to the most. That's why people like me, because I'm just on the camera just being me. I'm just being raw. So throughout the years, there were a lot of situations that I wouldn't have faced. I wouldn't have talked about. You know, I just probably would have kept getting in fights or some shit. And I Mm would have been standing on the ground of, I was provoked. And it is what it is, you know, and... I would have been still using excuses. I had to realize that at the end of the day, when I leave this earth, I have a legacy I want to leave. You know, I do a lot outside of entertaining people on this reality show. I'm a talk show host. I'm a mother. My family, I'm very charitable. I have so many parts of my life that I don't want to be just known for fighting bitches on TV. And so I had to face a very dark part of myself and fix that character flaw that weakness that I had assigned myself that I can't control myself. Oh yeah, I can't control myself. Yes, I absolutely can't walk away. I absolutely can't cut this argument off. I absolutely can't keep my mouth shut and not say the lowest of the low. And so I that the reality TV put me in different positions to have to face some hard truths on TV. So what people saw when they said, oh, she's grown so much, they saw that part of the growth. The book talks about the growth before the show. And then it also gives you a perspective of what I was thinking in some of those situations that you saw on the show. So it's a lot of different lenses that people are going to get to look through and read in the book. 
I think what you're talking about is a level of accountability that the show forced you to have that maybe other people just like, I don't have that level of accountability. I'm not a reality star. People don't, I don't have thousands of followers on Instagram. When you were going into the show, right? When you were first cast on The Real Housewives of Atlanta, were you expecting that level of like responsibility that you would have to take? Like, what was your... What was your goal going into the show? Because I know a lot of people go on TV for different reasons. What was Portia's reasoning for getting on this big platform at the time? My reason for joining the show, number one, they asked me. Mm. Uh, (laughs) I didn't seek it out. I was a fan of the show, first of all. So I never thought I would be in the TV. Like I said, I'm in the TV. Never (laughs) thought that. But my goal and getting on the show was so sweet. It really was. Oh, my gosh. I think about that, Portia. It was so sweet, so innocent, so genuine. And I really thought I was going to accomplish that. And it was that my ex-husband and I had just got married. We were a young black family. We were a blended family because he had a son. And I just thought our world was so beautiful, which it was in the beginning of our marriage. And I told my husband at the time, I'm like, babe, let's join the show. You know, you're an ex-athlete. You know, you had a tough time leaving the league, you know, let's show the world where you are now, how accomplished you are. And, you know, I think that this would do our family good. My, I have a background. My grandfather, Reverend Jose Williams, I have a legacy. Let's bring attention to my family's charity. So it was like 1000% cookie cutter, positive house with the picket white fence that I thought I was going to be showing. But the camera saw something completely different. The camera saw someone who had on a mask and and I don't even think when I joined the show, I knew I had on the mask. I just knew that I was the wife and that that was my title and I am being a wife. That's not the realest type of wife. Like when I get married again, when I marry Simon, I'm not wearing, you know, the title of a wife. I'm Portia and he's Simon and that's my husband and I'm the wife. But I still have my identity. I still have my voice. But to me, growing up from the South, baby, a wife was submissive. We, you know, make sure that people don't know the business going on in the house. Everything was clean. My husband looked good. And, you know, you just don't you don't you don't get the secrets of a black family. And so that's how I grew up. And that's what I was portraying on TV. And it just was it just bust that little bubble first year. Was there a specific moment where you felt that dissonance, where you realized that what you were putting out was not what people were receiving? Because I remember watching your first season and then I saw the other season. I was like, oh, Porsche is different. So there must have been something that clicked for you. Was Did you remember a specific moment where you're like, oh, let me just be real? Yeah. Oh, no, it wasn't just let me be real. It was like, well, damn, you don't like me? Like, who who walks through life and like meet people who say, I don't like you? Who, yeah. who walks through life and has someone call them dumb to their face? Like, hmm. who walks through life and, and you introduce them to your husband and call him controlling? Like, so all these things that were being said to me by the women and by the public, I was like in complete shock. Like, what? How y'all see that? That's not what I was trying for you to see. That's not that's not yeah. what I wanted you to get from this picture that I've painted yeah. for you. But that's what they got from it. For you as a star on this show, because you are such a huge part of the Atlanta franchise and the history and the culture of it, 
I don't know. I just feel like it's so taxing. And you're such a strong person. You have such a good attitude about it. But in the moment, again, your desire and what you wanted to give to people, the gift that you wanted to give to people was not what we received. How do you navigate that, right? And come to a place of like, okay, I'm going to do it differently. I just feel like it's so much because it's like, I would have just been like, okay, bye. I don't want to do this anymore. Y'all don't (laughs) even like me. Right. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I want to hit two things that you said. First thing is you said that you just loved me. Right. And people like you who just saw my heart and just love me is the is one of the only things, probably the second thing that kept me on the show, because I knew I was misunderstood. I knew I was getting my words mixed up. I knew that I could not be this person that wouldn't get negative comments. You just can't be that person because you're never going to please everybody. But what, what ended up happening was people like you and other supporters They just saw my heart. They were like, okay, she might not be perfect. She does this, she does that. But you know what? She's just living her life on this camera. And at the end of the day, they know they're not perfect. So they can relate to that. So that held me up a lot. And then I would say the other thing about being on the show is that you end up getting like this thick skin. And the thick skin was forced on me because I had to stay on the show the second year because I had no damn money. When I got a divorce, you know, I, everybody saw on the show, it was what it was. I was starting from scratch. I was waiting on that check to get to start my business, to get a home and, you know, try to find myself. So really it was out of a need to kind of stay there. And then it just became like this relationship that had these ups and downs that I was just attached to. And that's how I ended up staying there for so long. But in the beginning, that first, that second season, it was like, I, I, you know, I, of course I didn't want to live the rest of the divorce in the public. I think my divorce was like second search after Michael Jordan. So I already had a lot of press off the show. So I definitely didn't want to do the second season, but I was like, no, I need the money. I need the money. Mm -hmm. And I really did like the fact that some of the fans really just saw me and that kind of held me together. I was like, okay, okay. Some people get me. Now, let me try to show them some more of me. Maybe they'll get to know me some more. And I kept making mistakes. And then they kept getting to know me. So here we are today. That people can look at me and say, I see growth and I'm here on this journey with you. Yeah, I love that. You sort of talked about Real Housewives of Atlanta as a relationship, right? Ups and downs. And now recently you've, you've closed that chapter and sort of stepped away from that relationship. Iconic as it was. But I, I want to sort of talk about then for you, you're, you're moving on to a new space and a new place. And what is that sort of signal for you, right? If we're talking about relationships with men, with shows, you know, with yourself, like what is this sort of like new relationship phase look like for you with this book and with Portia's Family Matters? What are those things that are your non-negotiables in this new relationship phase that you're going into? Everything's on my terms and it's okay. I have not always been the person who can say no. I have definitely not been the person to to even say it's on my terms. Hell, I didn't think my terms were worthy of nothing. But mm-hmm. now that I know just how I want my world to look around me, whatever I can do to control that, I do. So, you know, at this particular moment, I am very protective of my world, my atmosphere, my peace, my mental health, period. And I don't let anything get in front of that like literally nothing i don't care who you are family non-family whatever it is about my mental health 
And I tell you where that came from. When I gave birth to my daughter, I went through postpartum depression. And that was such a low. Only thing that brought me out of it is that I knew I had to get my mom right and able in order to raise my daughter. And I know that I want to be there for my daughter. So I have to make sure that my mental health is in order. And if it takes me to move back from things that I've been used to, a certain world that has formed around me to figure, to reorganize my world, then that's what I'll do. So I would have to say, and this is the first time I've actually put this into words, that me walking away from housewives is me reorganizing my world for my future. Because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of my life has been lived, even though I, nobody really on TV wants to admit, it's a little bit of it is because you're on the show. Some of your decisions are because you're on the show. You may want to do this business, but it's like, I can't do that business because I can't show it on the show. No matter what, nobody will admit it, but that, it just, it's in the back of your head. I'm conditioned. I've been doing this for 10 years. And so finally, at this moment of, of space and time, every decision is mine. And I'm confident in every single move that I make. And I'm okay with saying no to some big stuff. Big stuff has definitely come my way and I'm okay with saying no to it because it does not align with what I am, what my purpose is and and how I have the picture for my future. So I'm just at a confident place and I'm unapologetic about it. I guess that's the best thing. You know, we black girls, we never get to be unapologetic. We always got to be apologizing or taking the, taking the backseat or being humble. I really almost despise that word at this moment because you can be confident and you humble at heart. It's your heart that's humble. Your actions should be powerful. They should be, mm. listen, they should be uh, authoritative. Like you should be owning everything around you. If you have a humble heart, you got a humble heart. It is what it is. Mm. That's right. <laughs> talk to him, Portia. Ooh. Talk to him. But to me, like right. listening to you, it sounds like there's so much freedom in every decision and so much confidence. But was there also fear? Like you, I've left jobs before and there's like, I've been terrified. Once I posted on tell you, I literally broke down crying on the highway. I pulled off on the next exit and I was just so emotional. It just felt like something was being ripped from me. It was hard. It was bittersweet. And then, you know, I cried and I got home and I wiped my tears and then I took a deep breath and I was like, I'm free. Mm-hmm. You free. I know that's right. Ooh. The shackles off my feet so I can be free and still pay your I bills. Praise him. You know, like, <laughs> I'm scrambling. Truly, because I think, and I know we have to let you go in a few minutes, but I do want to just talk about a little bit about now you free, okay? We're free and bills paid. Now we're building on that, right? We're building a business. And so now sort of as you're transitioning with your own show and in this new phase with PJ and with Simon and your whole blended family, how are you sort of blending that business with that personal now in this new phase of your life? Well, number one, the man that I have and Simon is very supportive, very supportive, very secure, you know, and all of that is important, especially when you have a woman like me who's in the spotlight and, you know, our profile in the entertainment world, any of us, all of us right here, sitting right here, our profile, you can see where we are today, but the possibilities are endless because we're talented. 
So I can be worth a hundred thousand a day, but hey, you can't say that I won't be worth a couple million or a billionaire in the next five years. That's so right. you have to have a confident man to be on that ride with you to where you're trying to get to. So that's number one. And it's not saying that you got to have a man to be complete or whatever, but it does feel good to have someone who is supportive of your dreams. With that being said, I ain't worried about him doing nothing. Yeah. I got peace over there in a relationship. So I have focused on my business. I have time and space to spend with my daughter. Now that I'm taking a break from housewives, I have time for her. And I just have a mind now that when I wake up in the morning, I really want to make sure that I am doing things for my future. So right now, I'm not necessarily doing reality TV, but I'm working on entertainment. So I have a couple of projects. I'll be behind the camera producing some projects mm. that are coming up. I'm in a great place to be able to make some things happen. I don't want to sit stagnant on anything just because I'm not on these particular shows. I'm working with the time that I have right now. I'm like cherishing it and, and busy during those moments to make this life that I'm looking at, making this life that I want, which is at the end goal is to have time for PJ. So that's it. That's it. I, I love it. Just uh, a last question for you. As you sort of talk about the things that you're doing that have nothing to do with you being on camera, you mentioned sort of purpose and you've mentioned that a couple times today with your advocacy. Can you just talk a little bit about what, what that is for you and what sort of piece that plays in your life on your day to day, whether on camera or behind it or none of the above? To be honest with you, Writing this book, when I initially thought about it, you know, a lot of celebrities write books. It's like a part of it. Yeah, TV, now write a book. But this book, this testimony is my life. It is my life. It is my truth. It is how I got to where I am today. So what I am so excited about at this moment is to be able to have these conversations I'm having with you with the public when I do my tour. Because I wrote this book to show that I'm just human, just like anybody else. You know, my heart is on my sleeve and I'm just going through life trying to figure it out. But I have this amazing source of power, which is God. That's my faith who has brought me through so many different situations. So right now, I truly feel aligned and being able to talk to women like you about women's empowerment and sexual abuse, childhood depression, these very, very, very important topics, being an African-American entrepreneur, all activism, all these things are things that mean so much to me because they made me who I am today. So I am super excited to be able to just have these conversations about things that have been plaguing our people and plaguing women for so long. And I really do hope that this book will help some young lady out there who sees herself in my situation and she decides, you know what? Mm -mm, I am enough. I'm going to take heed to that red flag. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Mm. Thank you so much, Portia. We know you have so many stories to tell and we're going to be listening and watching and reading. Oh, Trust I us. I love it. And I love you, <laughs> Thank ladies. You. Thank you so much for having me. Thank I love you. your podcast. You. You all, all you queens are so amazing. And again, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about my book. Amazing. Ah, well, congratulations. The Pursuit of Portia is out now. Go grab it, get your copies, and then tune in to everything else you've got up next because you're doing it, okay? Clearly. 
Sounds like there's a second book in there, too. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I think there is, too, because some things been going on since the book. The Go Off This Podcast is a Refinery29 original. It is produced by Rashad Isaac, Crystal Devone, Jordan Mason, and me, Chelsea Sanders. It's edited by Hanger Studios. My co-hosts today were Kathleen Newman-Bramang, Maya Carmichael, and Inaye Komanivo. Like what you heard and want some more? Head over to Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts to catch up on all episodes. And don't forget to drop a review or leave a comment to let us know what you think. You can also find us where it all started, on Instagram, at R29Unbothered. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, it's okay to go off, sis. Money world.